This is chapter 127 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we turn our focus to the youngest of readers with books you'll enjoy reading aloud to them over and over and over again. October is Bullying Prevention Month, and author Tracy Hecht addresses the emotional and situational challenges kids face, like bullying, in her Nocturnal series. The books chronicle the after-dark adventures of a trio of nocturnal animal friends made up of a fox, a sugar glider, and a pangolin. And there are books for middle grade readers, those are those in the third, fourth, and fifth grades, as well as easier books for those kids just learning to read. I spoke to her about the latest in the series, as well as why she's passionate about reading aloud to kids of all ages. I love that kids can grow with your books and these characters as they go from those early level books to these middle grade books. But you actually wrote the middle grade book first, right? I did. I wrote the middle grade books first, and they're um, they're more sophisticated. They have um, more sophisticated adventures and themes and sort of, I would say, emotional challenges or, or um, situational challenges. But what we found out was that a lot of, like, younger brothers and sisters and even people in libraries, the younger kids were listening in. And so um, I, I worked with a lot of librarians and educators and families um, and decided to do this early reader series so that the younger kids could be reading about the same three main characters, but listening or having read aloud to them the middle grade books with the same characters in them as well. So let's talk about the newest book in the series, The Kooky Kinkachu. It addresses the topic of bullying. And what role do you think books play in understanding and preventing that kind of behavior in kids? It's a good question because I think that it's really different, the role a book plays, depending on how old a kid is. And, you know, developmentally, what bullying means is very different to a seven-year-old than it is to a 12-year-old. So the series, The Nocturnals, while it's um, the same characters from, you know, the early reader books all the way through the middle grade books, the way that those themes are dealt with are, are very different. And so in the case of the kooky kinkachu, um, there's a really silly kinkachu, which, by the way, excellent job pronouncing it. A lot of people are like, how do you say this? Um, but a, a kinkachu is a marsupial. And in, in the book, the kinkachu is, is very silly and fantasy oriented and uses her imagination a lot, which infuriates one of the other characters who, who calls her kooky and says she's a little bit cuckoo. And so it's about name calling and what it means to have someone treat you badly just for enjoying yourself and being yourself. And, um, and, you know, I think that it's really valuable for kids because, you know, they live in a world where name calling does happen, you know, and, you know, someone does make you feel bad. It, it happens. And so having a book where you can, you know, talk about it, find language, find, um, you know, sort of wrap your, your head around what it's like to do to a character helps you understand how you engage in those emotions when it happens to you. Now, you also have a couple of top tips for bullying prevention. Can you tell us about those? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, this is this is tricky because it really it is such a complicated topic. But um, I, I really do believe that the most important thing with bullying, whether you're a young child or whether you're going through adolescence, um, even if you're an adult, frankly, is to empower yourself around letting the things that are um, happening to you not affect you as deeply as they sometimes can. And so 
all of the anti-bullying in our books is really about empowerment and sort of taking that power away from the bully and putting it back into yourself. And we do that through the characters in the books and then all of our activities and, um, and educator guides are really about how to translate the things you see and learn in these books into your own behavior and your own sort of self-confidence and self-awareness that, it, that um, these things shouldn't be allowed to affect you. I know that you're a big proponent of reading aloud to kids of all ages. Why do you feel that's so important? I know. I'm such a nut about it. I really think it's important. Even when when kids are reading on their own, I think there's a tendency to think, oh, they can read on their, themselves. They should be able to do it. But reading aloud is like any shared content. I mean, you watch TV and movies with your kids. You listen to music. And when you read aloud, it is a different kind of engagement in storytelling and in emotional experiences. And, you know, I think when you're going through adolescence, it's a really it's a really informative time in terms of the things that are happening to you and who you become. And when you read aloud to your 10 year old who can read on their own, I'm sure it's a really great thing to be able to have conversations that come from those stories and that books and the conversations can be something like we're talking about around bullying and the things I deal with in the nocturnals, but they can be other things too. They can be about friendship or things that happen in the world or nature or, I mean, there's, they're really, it's a really great tool to sort of, I would say, engage with, you know, your child, your student, um, you know, whomever is, is in your life in a way that I think gives you, um, you know, a great forum for having conversations and conversations that can sometimes be harder to have in the first person around what things are happening to you. And it also seems to be really important in this day and age when everybody is just glued to the screens in front of them. Yeah, I don't. I mean, it's one of those things where I oftentimes tell people who don't read aloud, I say instead of instead of instead of watching TV or listening to music, just like read a book for 15 minutes, like at the dinner table and see what it does to your dinner conversation and your dinner experience. Like it's an amazing thing. And, you know, it's just one of those things where we've gotten out of the habit of it because we have all of these other new things to watch, to see, to do. But when you go back to reading anything, really, it is really engaging in terms of how you connect to the people you're reading aloud with in a really exciting way. And it's amazing when I ask people to do it and they do it, they are so excited by how transformative it is to their family environment or their classroom environment or even you know their library where they do it all the time anyway. I think you've hit on another problem there in this modern age is getting people around the dinner table at the same time. <laughs> I know, I know. But you know, I use that example, which maybe isn't a good one because we don't have those same ritualistic, you know, things that we used to maybe 30 years ago. But, um, but you know, you can read a book when you're riding a bus or when you're waiting for a doctor's appointment or when you're sitting out in front of school getting dropped off. It's, there's a lot of ways to do it. And I always say just use a book the way you use conversation, even if it's just for two minutes. Read something for two minutes. Um, you, can, you can squeeze it into your day in a lot of different ways. So do you think you'll ever run out of nocturnal friends to add to your little universe? It's, I, it's one of those things that is really fun with my job, which is that when you start researching nighttime and nighttime animals and nighttime realms and phenomenon, people are always like, gosh, you're, how do you come up with this? You're incredible, all these ideas. And I say, I don't. It's, it's real. Like, so you have these moon bows and a aquatic firestorms and crazy interesting animals. And it's very, very inspiring to write stories that take place at this time. So there are going to be many more stories to come, I guess, is what you're really telling us. 
I mean, I really enjoy writing them. So both the early readers and, you know, the chapter books for middle graders, they're, um, they're different and they're really fun to write. And, um, and so I, I, I plan to do them a little bit longer yet. All right. Well, we're happy to hear that. We've been talking with Tracy Hag. She's the author of the Nocturnal series. The newest book is The Kooky Kinkachu. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me, Lisa. We've all heard of the terrible twos. If you haven't, you're pretty lucky. It's that time in a child's life when meltdowns can be a daily occurrence as they struggle to express themselves with the limited language they possess. In her new picture book, author-illustrator Ruby Roth suggests instead of telling a child to use their words, we should be teaching them how to manage their inner selves. She tells us about her new book, Bad Day. You meet a little boy named Henny and you are dropped into the middle of his tantrum and meltdown. And with a deep breath and a pause, he starts to make sense of his feelings by um, going inside of a paper bag and discovering the space inside of himself and the power of turning inward. And so this book is great for introverts and extroverts and kids with anxiety and sensitivity and everyone in between. It's really different from similar books in that it doesn't downplay or talk down to kids having a difficult time. Yes, I really made a point to be different from other feelings books that I saw out there. I think this one is more honest and relatable in that you really see and feel what a meltdown feels like to a kid. And it goes on for quite a while. So I I wanted kids to see themselves reflected in this book, um, you know, in this kind of gritty feelings um, explosion, but also know that they're ultimately responsible for the feelings that they have. Now, did you witnessing this type of meltdown in a child or, you know, just seeing something out in public, is that what inspired you or did this come from a different place? This came from the heart and challenges I had in my childhood. I didn't have explosions or meltdowns, but um, I wore a back brace for scoliosis starting when I was six years old for 13 years, 20 plus hours a day. So I had to learn how to um, be comfortable in my mind, even if I was uncomfortable in my body and being bound. So I discovered my what I know now to be my observer mind at a very young age, um, understanding that I am not my body and discovering how to move from automatic reactive thoughts to an objective point of view. But these days also, out there in public, I see a lot of parents um, avoiding landmines and just trying to skirt around any kind of feelings that their kids have. And I really want parents and kids to learn you know, not to shut down these feelings and not to avoid them, but to delve in because there's wisdom there in, in, a, in a child's instincts and what they're feeling and how they learn how to take care of themselves and discover what their personal needs are. So how do you envision parents and adults can use this book to help kids? I think a lot of parents... You hear a lot of parents saying, use your words, use your words, when, you know, a child is is having feelings. Um, But I think this book helps with a step that has to come before that moment, which is the kid might not have the words yet to even locate and identify what their feelings are. So this book kind of guides parents and kids 
um, about a reminder to pause and reflect and to go inside and scan your body, scan your mind, look at the day that you've had and look for clues as to why you feel the way you do. And then a child might be able to begin to articulate what's going on inside of themselves. Now, that that kind of viewpoint, that's all part of the larger thing of, of trying to be mindful and mindfulness, right? Yes. My previous children's books are about um, our, our personal behavior and how we affect the planet through our choices. And I see this the same way. Um, I, I, in my previous books, I address more physical health and the well, wellness of the planet. And this time I wanted to address the mind because I think that's the root of our ability to holistically heal ourselves and the planet and course correct and repair everything that's going on in the world today from, you know, health to politics and um, and climate change even. It all begins with looking at ourselves and, and going inside and seeing what our part in all of this is. And I guess also it's really never too young to start. I always say it's never too early to begin learning how our choices affect the public realm. Um, I see all of my books as kind of an otherwise absent initiation that we have in our culture for teaching a kid self-reliance and self-responsibility and helping them begin to see their place in a global community. So that begins with being able to look at our own behavior and understand um, how to take care of our needs and also know that our behavior affects our community and the people around us locally and globally. You know, I think if someone were to jump into this conversation just in the last couple of questions, they would think we were talking about an adult book and not a kid's <laughs> book. And, it, and you know, you can't help but feel that there are lessons for adults within this book's pages. Thank you. Well, I said in the book trailer, this book is for ages zero to 101. Um, but my experience as a former teacher in the elementary school age group was that kids really pay attention when you speak frankly to them. And not a lot of people speak to kids as if they're peers. And I was successful with my kids and had great relationships with them and great conversations. I think because I didn't try to talk down to them or condescend or sanitize, you know, any conversations, I was very honest with them and and their ears perk up when you speak to them like that. Let's also talk about the drawings because you illustrated it as well. Yes. And I love little Henny, but I think I love his teddy bear even more. (laughs) (laughs) The teddy bear kind of functions as an observer. He's kind of there and and, um, watching as Henny has his meltdown and then, you know, discovers the power of turning inward and ends up feeling, you know, self-empowered in the end. The teddy bear winks at you in the end. He breaks down that fourth wall. (laughs) Yeah. This is not just the end. It's it's the beginning. And I think, too, I think there are a lot of adults out there, again, who could probably relate with having such a bad day that you want to hide in a paper bag. Yeah, we all have that. Um, And it, it there's no... There's no arrival, I think, for for any of us. That's why self-help is, you know, so big in the adult market, because it's a lifelong practice, and it always will be. Well, Ruby Roth, thank you for say- taking some time and talk to me today about uh, your new kid book, Bad Day. Thank you so much for having me. 
The children's classic Goodnight Moon was first published in 1947. If by some chance you are not familiar with it, it's the one featuring a bunny saying goodnight to everything in his great green room. Since its debut, the book has been translated into at least 13 languages and sold some 48 million copies. It's also spawned a few parodies. The latest is Goodnight Bubbala, which reimagines the little old lady whispering hush as a big, noisy Jewish family. Author Cheryl Half stopped by our studios to talk about her take on the lovable classic. There have been a lot of different incarnations of the classic Goodnight Moon. What inspired you to write this version? Well, I've always loved Goodnight Moon, and I read it to my kids, but it was actually written in 1947. And so I was curious about taking a look again. And when I read it as an adult, it really made me wonder, who is that quiet old lady whispering hush? And I thought, is she a grandma? And then I was thinking, you know, if she was a grandma in my family, this room would not be that quiet. (laughs) So I really started to imagine what Goodnight Moon would look like with my family and um, kind of like something between Fiddler on the Roof and my big fat Greek wedding. (laughs) Did it take you a long time to write it or is it one of those things when you sat down, all the ideas just came to you? Well, I knew that to um, have a story about Jewish culture, I needed to include the Yiddish language. I had heard Yiddish from my own grandmother, and being a New Yorker, I've heard it a fair amount. But um, incorporating into the story, especially a book that rhymes, took some time. Oh, I bet, because I don't think Yiddish is that easy to rhyme, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, my daughter had said, she said, I love everything except why is there a gorilla in it? And I said, well, if you turn to the last page, you'll know why. I was wondering the same thing, and when I got to the end, I was like, that's why it's in there. <laughs> I think my favorite uh, coupling that you have is the, the dozen bagels and the bowl full of knadles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, with, with the rise of anti-Semitism in New York, we've been seeing more, more attacks. It's happening across the world. A book that educates and celebrates Jewish life and Jewish cultures for a young audience seems really appropriate. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Of course, I'm sorry that we have to talk about anti-Semitism, but I do think that this is an opportunity to reflect uh, not just Jewish culture, but also values that are universal. I think just like Goodnight Moon, I don't think of, I don't think we think about Goodnight Moon as a book about gratitude, but um, I think both Goodnight Moon and Goodnight Bubble are about gratitude. If if you're taking the time to say goodnight to your things, you're sort of showing gratitude and appreciation. Um, And in Goodnight Bubbala, it really, um, I think, emphasizes the importance of cherishing our loved ones and elders. And I think those are beautiful, universal messages that I think any culture could appreciate. And unlike Goodnight Moon, where the little bunny just had the old lady in the rocking chair, you have a whole army of family who shows up, right? Yeah, and I think um, as I've shared this book with families who are of Jewish heritage, um, they definitely laugh at the Bubbies and the Zadies and all the favorite foods and the music. But I've really shared it with many other cultures. I spent a lot of time um, living in Wyoming, where there isn't a Jewish pop, isn't a large Jewish population, and people relate to it because I think everybody has. Um, sort of a big, well-meaning family that can sometimes be overbearing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Let's get back to the Yiddish that's in the book. UNESCO identifies it as an endangered language. Maybe not here in New York so much, but in other parts of the world. Tell me why it's so important to hashtag save Yiddish. Hmm. Well, I think if you look at the English language, you can probably take a paragraph and find references from so many languages. And um, people use Yiddish not even realizing it's Yiddish. People might say, oh, I just want a little nosh, or oh my gosh, I carried all my stuff, what a schlep, or stop kvetching. And I've just always loved the language. I think it's so expressive and it's feisty. And I actually think that life would be duller without it. I also think that it somehow connects us back to our roots. Um, It comes from Central and Eastern uh, Jewry, but also with um, parts of Hebrew and Aramaic, the Slavic languages. So it's a very rich and vibrant language. And um, it also makes people laugh. You know, it's also experiencing a sort of resurgence. Like I know on our radio station, on our air, today alone three times I've heard the ad for Fiddler in the Roof Mm -hmm. in Yiddish, which has been a huge hit here in New York. And I think that has to be, it's reaching audiences that don't just either heard it growing up or or speak it nowadays. I I mean, the story of Fiddler on the Roof first being off-Broadway here in New York and then selling out and now being on-Broadway, I think is pretty extraordinary. What I've heard is that millennials, young parents, um, people raising Jewish families may not be interested in being religious. Um, My own family, I wouldn't say we're religious at all, Um, but there's something sort of special about connecting to the culture and to your history and to the language. And I feel like um, there's something retro that is um, helping with the resurgence. So the book itself happens on a, a night during Hanukkah. And in that vein, you have a latke recipe that Ina Garten contributed to the book. How did that happen? You ask such good questions. Ina's <laughs> <laughs> um, become a dear friend. Um, we were just lucky to meet um, a bunch of years ago. And we, um, we just share a lot in terms of our outlook, our creativity. We were having coffee and I was telling her about the book and she just thought it was such a fun and smart idea. And she just burst out and said, I'll make you a latke recipe. When I mentioned that to my publisher, the publisher said, well, do you think Ina would be willing to put it in the book? And I said, you know, I'd ask. And Ina so graciously uh, said yes. I mean, it was such a gift to me and to this book. I think it's the first time she's included a recipe in a book other than her own cookbooks. So um, I'm very grateful that she said yes. And I think it's also one of the only kid books I've come across that has a recipe in it. So that's kind of cool too, because you can read it with kids, do the recipe, and have it all connect to each other in this way that's not just reading a book together. I think that's true. I mean, I've heard that um, particularly like preschool teachers, kindergarten teachers, and parents, they love to be able to close the book and then have um, an activity to do together and um, actually I worked with the teacher to come up with other extension activities so on my website there's um, a fun activity where kids can make stick puppets with the characters there's a nice spy game so um, an adult can go through and 
play games with the kids. And there's also a journal activity where kids can um, draw and write stories about their own families. So I know you've written other kid books. Do you hope to keep pumping them out? Uh, yes. I love the world of writing for children. I love the process. Um, it was something that I just loved to do, just like the same way some people write poetry. I just loved to write stories. And um, I have another book coming out, which is based on my work that I do teaching elementary school kids engineering. And it's called Maisie's Amazing Machines. Um, and the artwork is underway from a spectacular artist named Jeremy Holmes. And uh, that book is due out in 2021. Excellent. Well, we look forward to that. In the meantime, everybody can go and pick out or pick up Goodnight Bubbala. Cheryl Half, thank you for stopping by and, and talking to us about it. It's such an honor. Thank you. By the way, Goodnight Bubbala has inspired not one, but two songs. The first, We're Gonna Learn Some Yiddish by Rebecca Schofer, teaches kids about the words that appear in the book. The second song by Joshua Rua is a musical retelling of the book. You can find them both on SoundCloud. And this is where this week's chapter comes to an end. Hopefully, we've inspired you to read to your kids and start them on the path that leads to a lifetime of reading. Next time, we dip our toe into the horror genre, just in time for Halloween. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I promise it's scary good. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.